Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. Today, a returning guest to the podcast, Ari Fleischer, who's out with a new book on the media. This is episode 36. Fleischer's new book is Suppression, Deception, Snobbery, and Bias, Why the Press Gets So Much Wrong and Just Doesn't Care. What a title. Uh, we talk CNN, Trump, and out-of-touch elite media, and we begin with the topic of suppression over the last six years. It's a great a great look at the industry, you know, particularly, I think, in the last five or six years uh, in the Trump era and some things that I think directly related to Trump and some things that maybe uh, just were kind of parallel path with the Trump era. Um, but, you know, you you have a really unique experience. Obviously, you're someone who's been in the media. You were at CNN. I'm going to talk about CNN uh, later. Um, you're no longer, not for like the last 10 years, but um, but you've seen it on that side. You've seen it on the other side of the podium um, 20 years ago uh, as the press secretary. And so I, I wonder, as you as you started to kind of put this book together and, and start to gather the so many different examples that you bring up in the book that really you know serve your thesis. What do you? What's your kind of main takeaways as you look at this era? And and what what did you kind of find as you looked at it? And maybe look back on it that you that that even now kind of surprised you as as rather than when you went through it in the first time. Yeah, my my main takeaway is that the press abandoned the high ground of neutrality and objectivity, which serves our nation, and instead chose to become advocates. Much of the mainstream media decided they needed to right the wrong that the voters committed in 2016 by electing Trump. They decided they had to save the republic, and therefore their journalism tilted, was biased, and was activist journalism instead of objective journalism. Yeah. Yeah, there's... um... You know, obviously, lots of examples. I think one of the things that stuck out to me the most was your your chapter on suppression. Um, and it really, I mean, you 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 track a couple of the different areas where suppression comes into play. I think Hunter Biden was one. COVID. I mean, we could go through lots of different examples. Um, but it's it's one of the biases. I think a bias of omission or what gets suppressed, what doesn't get covered, is one of the things that I think the average consumer is. It's a little bit less clear about what a bias is. People understand a political bias, you know, the media leans left, whatever. But but what doesn't get covered? What gets kind of by design um, doesn't get to the audience? That's so so interesting as well. And I, I wonder if you know it's the suppression side of it. Where do you think that stands in kind of the overall landscape? Well, it's a huge piece of the puzzle. I mean, it's frankly why Fox News and conservative media came to exist in the first place. You know, it wasn't so long ago before cable really hit that everybody watched CBS, NBC and ABC for their news. And the only reason that conservative media even developed was because there was this innate sense that, wait a minute, they're not telling me everything. I think there are other things that are out there, but it's lacking. And so therefore, the mainstream media created the environment in which conservative media bloomed because people knew they weren't getting all the news. And to put a point on it, there are several examples I gave of of suppression. You know, Hunter Biden laptop is the obvious one. But, you know, one that I talked about was uh, Senator Tim Scott, Republican of South Carolina, African-American, gave a response to one of Joe Biden's addresses to Congress. Scott was chosen to be the Republican spokesman. And a Democrat county chairman in Texas referred to Tim Scott as an Oreo. 
You can't get more racist or pejorative than that. Now, the New York Times, I found examples of an obscure state representative from Ohio and a state representative from Florida who said inappropriate things about African-Americans. They should never have said them. And it became a story in the New York Times, legitimately so. But when Tim Scott was called the Oreo, did the New York Times cover it? No. Did the Washington Post? No. Did ABC, CBS, NBC? No, no, and no. Example after example of left-wing intolerance, left-wing racism. But does it get covered? It's not. It's suppressed because the media wants to think the only intolerant and bigoted and wrong-minded people among us are these conservatives, these Trump people, these populists. And so we're just not told the full story. There are fringes in America. If the media only stayed neutral and told the story about the fringes in both directions, we'd be a much better country because then we could all dismiss the fringes. But when they only point their finger on one side, one fringe feels emboldened and the other thinks it's getting a pass. Yeah, it's uh, it does. Right. I mean, it, you, you talk about it specifically in kind of the Trump era. Obviously, you know, you you write about kind of the different the evolution of this. I know you kind of give examples of of getting uh, journalists or I think uh, aspiring journalists to raise their hands uh, and determine, you know, what where where they their voting patterns were. And so the, the, the liberal media, a media that leans left, that votes Democrat is not necessarily new. But what is new is maybe kind of how we see it play out. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think one of the things you, you, you write is that, you know, if we want good journalism, fair, neutral, then you would see the split, you know, six hands voting for Hillary, six hands voting for Trump when asked who they voted for, um, you know, the, the makeup of that, of that room would be closer to 50, 50, obviously it's nowhere close to that. I think your, your, uh, reporting was 12 to one, um, for Democrat. Do you think that's it? I mean, would that, I know that would be a step in the right direction, but do you think that literally the voting, you know, background of a journalist would, you know, be one of the major fixes to this? Well, it's a partial fix. And what you just alluded to was I hired an opposition research firm to go into the White House briefing room and pull the public records, the voter registration information for the White House press corps, those who sit in those 49 seats, and they found that by a ratio of 12 to 1, those seats are occupied by Democrats. And I raised the issue in my book, why not 1 to 1? Why isn't it even? Or why isn't it? Can you imagine what would happen if it was 12 to 1 Republican to Democrat? Wouldn't the news be very different? Wouldn't the yeah. coverage of Joe Biden be very different? But journalism has an original sin. The people who go into journalism, by and large, are cut from the same liberal, highly educated anti-Republican, anti-populist, anti-conservative, think-alike, tweet-alike, look-alike cloth. And there's another study I found. It's a 2018 Pew Research study that shows the only group of Americans who say that the press understands them are college-educated Democrats. If you're a Democrat with a high school degree, you say the press doesn't understand me. If you're an independent, high school or college, you say the press doesn't understand me. And certainly Republicans for decades have been saying the, the press doesn't understand me. The media culturally is down to being college-educated Democrat voters who know how to talk to fellow college-educated Democratic voters. But if you grew up with a weapon in your home, if you grew up having been taught how to hunt by your grandfather, if you grew up praying every day before your meals, if you grew up believing that life begins at conception, you don't think the press understands you. And you know why? Because they don't. 
they kind of parachute in to cover you, kind of almost like you're an object at the zoo, and they'll write about you, and then they'll have disdain. They kind of look down on you. The first part of my book, Steve, it begins with a CNN episode where Don Lemon and two guests relentlessly mock 75 million people who voted for Donald Trump. They didn't just go after Trump. They went after Trump voters. One of his guests puts on a fake Southern accent, pretends to be a Trump voter, full of ridicule and disdain. And Don Lemon is laughing his head off. And finally, he literally picks his head up. He put it down on the table, wipes away a tear from his laughter and says, thanks. I needed that. Yeah. How is that journalism? How does that help the country? Rick Wilson and Wajahat Ali were the pundits there. I have to say, I think I was the one who probably first put that on the map. I, I was actually watching CNN one. It was like like 1230 at night on a Saturday night. I don't even know why I was doing that. Uh, but and yeah, I mean, it, it just it felt like a real encapsulation of the moment. Um, and obviously, you know, we we know a lot about Rick Wilson, who was, you know, at one time a conservative pundit, then went real never Trump with uh, the Lincoln Project and Wajahat Ali, who, if you read his columns, there could not be a more hateful sort of commentator there. Don Lemon, we know the trajectory. So yeah, no, it, it is such a it's such a core clip, I think, that kind of shows so much. From Gavin Newsom to Bernie Sanders, how deep does the media's political bias go compared to other forms of bias? I was reading the book and it, it made me think of actually another book that um, it's it's so weird, the things that stick out to you. But I, I was reading, um, I, I remembered something that that uh, Gavin Newsom wrote a book 10 years ago called Citizenville. And it's so funny to think about Gavin Newsom's trajectory. He was just at the White House. You know, maybe he's running in 2024. Who knows? Um, but he wrote in this book, uh, and I'm going to read you this quote. He wrote, people would riot if they knew about the private conversations between some politicians. And then he quotes those conversations as saying, the public is incapable of understanding the nuances of this. So let's not tell them the whole truth is an attitude I've heard expressed over and over. Governments will always err on the side of releasing minimum amount of data that they can get away with. Um, which it was interesting to me because it's like it's an interesting admission, especially I think Gavin Newsom has probably gone far away from maybe the uh, the semi populist that he was sounding like in that moment in 2013 when he wrote the book. Um, but I wonder how much of it you think mirrors some of what we see in the politics. Also, I think Trump was kind of the the you know the great wrecking ball of maybe both political parties. But but how much of that um, elitism that we see in the media tracks in politics as well? Oh, I, I think the press is in a category by itself because politicians have to pander. Politicians have to seek the vote, get the vote, and win the vote. Journalists have lost the vote and they don't care. I mean, that's part of the thesis of my book, that they keep getting so much wrong and they just don't care. Reporters are well aware of these polls. It's, it's been a decades-long decline in trust for the press. Uh, Gallup has been tracking this since the 70s. They asked, is the mainstream media, the major media tell the news fully, accurately, and fairly. Right after Watergate, it was about 72% of the country thought the press told the news fairly, accurately, and, uh, uh, and in context. And now it's down into the low 40s. It's right. record lows believe that the press even can do its job, which is to tell the news. They know it, but they can't stop the slide. And they can't stop the, stop the slide because they think there's something wrong with their customers. They don't think there's something wrong with themselves. They think they're saving the republic. And this is why there are a group of college-educated Democrat voters who talk to college-educated Democrat voters. If your agenda is the Green New Deal, if your agenda is fossil fuels are wrong, if your agenda is that Colin Kaepernick, when he took a knee, people who do that deserve to be respected. It's a righteous protest. 
they're just in such a different category to begin with. And their appeal is so limited to so few. It's why the polls keep showing them go down, but they don't stop. So no, I, I think the media is in a category by itself. Yeah, you uh, you had a great exchange. I I, I'm, I I like Jane Coaston. I've had her on this podcast uh, a couple times actually, and her exchange with Hugh Hewitt, where she gets very honest about um, you know the percentage of of media that she predicts you know the national media that that voted for Trump, or as you talk about some of these other issues, which yeah, I mean it's 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 obvious. I think that they just are are totally unrepresentative of the country that they you know purport to cover. Um, so so that's definitely clear. Let me ask you on, on a different way though. Um, Biden was the nominee in 2020. Hillary Clinton was the nominee in 2016. If it turned out that Bernie Sanders, for example, was the nominee in one of those elections on the Democratic side, do you think we would have seen something different in the sense of like a Trump-like disruptor within the Democratic Party? Would the press have still carried the water in the way that they did with Biden and Hillary? Yeah, I think against Donald Trump, they certainly would have. Yeah. I, I think they've already glossed over the fact that Bernie is a socialist. You know, when you see reference to Bernie, you, you hardly ever see the word socialist. In, next to him. Right. And that's the press's way of, of well, politic washing Bernie Sanders to make him look cleaner, better, more appealing than he is if they labeled him a socialist. Now, I guarantee you, if you had a Republican candidate running for president who changed his party, and let's just say he was no longer Republican, but his party was MAGA, everybody in the press would race to say he's the MAGA candidate, the MAGA candidate. You know what that means? Wink, wink. Bernie, they cleaned up Bernie's act for him. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, I I want to go to some of the more examples, but um, but before we do, a moment of hope that I actually got when reading the book was um, in in some areas in the sense of. Um, you had another another thing. I think you commissioned this with Frank Luntz, a poll of CNN, um, uh, CNN, New York Times, and Fox News viewers, and. Certainly in some areas, there was big discrepancies. There was like, you know, is the country systemically racist? Big discrepancies, whether you watch Fox or CNN or, or read the New York Times, for example. But in other areas, there actually was a little bit more, uh, you know, they were a little bit closer together, the percentages than I than I thought. You know, people, a question about like, do you always stand for the anthem? 86% Fox, 77% CNN. Um, would you attend a gay wedding? 71% CNN, 51% Fox, which, you know, I think the average, you know, out-of-touch journalist may say that's actually a high number for Fox and actually kind of a low number for CNN, to be honest, um, or or something like uh, fly the American flag, 67% Fox, 62% New York Times. So in some ways, it gives me hope that that the media is out of touch, but the country maybe is not as divided as, as the media makes it out to seem. 100%. I mean, think about our normal lives when we're not focused on politics, when we're just talking to our neighbors or you see somebody at the grocery store. Is this what we get into? Do we get into this divisive right. stuff? Chances are no. Chances are we're talking about our kids. We're talking about vacation. We're talking about the latest road that got closed in our town. You know, those are the kinds of conversations where we still remain a united country around the big things. I'm convinced of that. I, I think what's gone wrong is our, our governmental system doesn't seem to be able to get much done anymore. Congress doesn't pass bills. Presidents don't sign bills, certainly not meaningful big ones that the country really is for. Our politicians have bungled a lot of things, like the withdrawal from Afghanistan. That could have been a bipartisan moment. And the press lives to divide us, which is the other part of it. And that's one yeah. of the reasons I wrote the book. I'm convinced that one of the problems in America is the mainstream media itself. The fact that they continue to get news wrong, 
put inaccurate information on the news, suppress news, act with this snobbery toward too many Americans. All of this adds up to a biased media that divides the country because it's probably good for their click business, but it's terrible for democracy and terrible just for our sense of national unity. Uh, the American people are more sensible than that, but it, it's still we, we still could use that type of unifying leader who actually means that when he says he's going to bring the country together, I would still like to find that leader. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. It's it's interesting, you know, the snobbery aspect of it. So so interesting. I, there's definitely people that I think on both sides. I would say Fox viewers and CNN viewers that I encounter. There are some like truly hardcore fans, and CNN never had that. I mean, when you and I worked there in 2013, there was no one who was like wearing the CNN hat. You know, it was like the thing you turned on when there was break. You know, when when there was a big election or when there's big breaking news. Uh, that definitely changed in the Trump era, but it wasn't a massive number of people. And I I, I remember a conversation I had with a friend of mine who's left-leaning CNN viewer, but but told me that he watched John Lemon's show because he found it funny. And I was like, that that's interesting. You know, and that's I don't think Don Lemon would be happy necessarily to hear that, but but that is, you know, it, it's sort of entertainment in a way. And I do think that there's an element of that. Um, but I, but also, you know, I'm in Dallas, you're you're on the East Coast. I think I think you're in, in Connecticut or New York. I don't remember where where you're located, but yeah, Westchester, New York. Okay. I mean, you know, it, it, it's are your interactions with people who are, you know normals, you know, not in the business, not in politics, not in media, are they saying similar things to what you kind of write about in your book? Well, we really never talk politics. Interesting. But yeah. I can tell you from events that I do across the country, speeches that I give, et cetera, the question I get asked the most is where can you go to find objective news? I do think there is a yearning for people to just be told what the facts are, what the truth is, and then let the people make the decisions. There's so much analysis and context in the media today that it's as if people are being told what their conclusions should be before they're even told what events took place. And I think everybody is tired of that. Um, there may be fringes who are just so activist, all they want to hear is the reinforcement of their own beliefs. But I think there's a yearning for most people just to know what took place and know that they can put it in the bank. It's money in the bank. They can count on it. It's accurate. It was tr it's true. Uh, I, I, I'm very curious about the CNN experiment that's underway now. Yeah. The new leadership of CNN, having gotten rid of uh, Jeff Zucker, the previous president, uh, who is the one who encouraged his CNN reporters to become activists and become tremendously opinionated instead of neutral and down the middle, he's gone. The new owners are saying they want to go back to objectivity and neutrality. And I'm very curious to see, one, if they mean it, and two, if they're capable of doing it. Coming up, the new era of CNN and the former era of CNN, and what a very curious media mistake about WikiLeaks tells us. That's next. But first, I want to talk about a notable shift in Acela media coverage of President Biden and what it signals. Besides the Afghanistan withdrawal and brief moments of COVID absurdity, the Biden administration's gotten largely the kid glove treatment from the broader Acela media. It's not surprising. After the Trump hangover and an administration that's stocked with buddies of the press, it takes a lot to get critical coverage of this White House. But something significant seemed to have happened in the post-Roe landscape. And whether it's a warning shot or the beginning of a sea change will be a massive story to cover. The eye-opener for me was a recent piece from CNN, which tracked down how Democrats are wondering, quote, whether Biden White House is capable of urgency moment demands. It opens with a ridiculous anecdote about a recent call between White House aides and celebrity activists and includes the actress Deborah Messing saying that she'd gotten Joe Biden elected and wanted to know why she was being asked to do anything at all, yelling that there didn't even seem to point to voting. 
The result from the White House was apparently to send a, quote, follow-up email with a list of basic talking points and suggestions of Biden's speech clips to share on TikTok. Really? CNN quotes a Democratic member of Congress anonymously trashing the White House as rudderless, aimless, and hopeless. But it was beyond the White House as a whole. It was aimed at Biden personally. CNN wrote, Biden's tendency to berate advisors when he's displeased with how a situation is being handled or when events go off poorly has trickled down the ranks in the White House, leaving several mid-level aides feeling blamed for failings despite lacking any real ability to influence the building's decision-making. That story led to a series of other stories that same night when emails were leaked that showed the Biden White House had planned to nominate a, quote, anti-abortion conservative. That was how the Washington Post framed it in their headline, although many outlets picked it up. The Washington Post said that anti-abortion conservative was going to be appointed to a lifetime federal judgeship in Kentucky. That appointment is now on hold and actually has been now taken away. But the implication at the time was clear. Biden is not stepping up in the wake of the Dobbs decision. He's doing the opposite. Pretty brutal of the Washington Post, by the way, to also highlight new press secretary Karine Jean-Pierre's deflection about the issue with this verbatim quote. So we don't, we we make it a point here to not comment on any on any vacancy, whether it is on the executive branch or judicial branch, especially those that have not, have not, the nomination has not been made yet. Get that? To give you an idea of just how this news was received by the aggregators, Vanity Fair wrote that the possible nomination was, quote, enough to get you openly weeping. So who does Biden still have in his corner? Well, there's the always reliably embarrassing Dana Milbank, who wrote a column just after that that said, give Biden a break. But the coverage was notable. It's worth pointing out that Biden signed an executive order on abortion shortly after these stories, or perhaps most correctly, as the New York Times headline framed it at the time, under pressure, Biden signs executive order on abortion. Maybe that's an attempt at a make good, an effort to get the press back on his side. Because time will tell whether this shift represents a push to light a fire under the administration's ass to get things back on track, or whether this kid glove break is really a breakup. More with Ari Fleischer coming up. The Fourth Watch podcast, though, is presented by The First TV. The First is a new network for free speech and big ideas featuring Bill O'Reilly, Dana Lash, Buck Sexton, and more. It's a forum for new thoughts, new approaches, and enlightening voice for a new America that embraces the founding principles and ideas that formed the greatest country on the planet. The first is free, free speech, free ideas, free TV. You can watch The First TV on Pluto TV, Distro TV, Apple TV, The First TV app, and more. Go to thefirsttv.com to learn more. And now, back to Ari Fleischer. Let's dig into CNN a little bit, because you had a great chapter about CNN in the book. Um, you and I were there almost the exact same amount of time. I was there 2010 to 2013. You were there 2011 to 2013. So we experienced the end of an old era of CNN and in the beginning, if you will, of, of, the, of the Zucker era. Um, we start, he took over in January 2013, although it was a pre-Trump CNN uh, when, when you and I worked there. Um, so I wonder, first of all, was there any seeds of what was to come that you saw in your last year there? Yeah, the seeds were there because the media was still liberal. I just knew it was an away game when I was on CNN as a commentator. I knew the questions I was going to get would be to come from the left. Yeah. I knew that the, the story definitions came predominantly from thinking like liberals. Uh, so that, but that's what I was used to for decades as a Republican press secretary. That's right. the mainstream media. That's who I yeah. dealt with all the time. But ostensibly, they were dedicated to objectivity and fairness. And they meant that, even though they didn't practice it all that often. They knew it was their job. That's thrown out the window. The only reason Jim Acosta from CNN, the White House correspondent, could stand in that briefing room and give his opinion and let it rip was because his management wanted him to. The only reason John Harwood, White House correspondent for CNN, 
could be such a strident spokesman for the Democrats and so stridently opinionated anti-Trump, anti-Republican was because his bosses liked it. And that is what changed. What used to be daytime, neutral, objective reporters were told, let it rip and let it rip against Donald Trump. Um, You know, one thing I wrote in the book is there used to be a motto in local news, if it bleeds, it leads. And now there's a motto at CNN, if it's anti-Trump, it gets a bump. And that's not the way it should be. Yeah, and it, and it did. I mean, it's, it got, got a real ratings bump. Well, I, it gets back to one thing, though, because, you know, Jeff Zucker, who I, I have to say, I worked the time that I spent working with Jeff, which was about nine months. Um, I actually really liked him. I worked closely with him. I think he's a smart guy and interesting. And he was always open to hear from other people. There was definitely an obsession, I think, with winning. And that that I think maybe seeded some of it for me of what to, was to come. But it also was a, a very strong pre-established relationship with Donald Trump. I mean, he was at Trump's wedding. You know, he was Trump's boss at NBC when uh, with Celebrity Apprentice. And so I wonder if you think as you're looking at what happened at CNN, which I think is how you kind of framed it in your article, uh, I'm sorry, in, in the book, it, how much was business versus personal there, do you think? Well, you know, there is a danger when somebody knows somebody from a previous position, you tend to ignore their promotion. He's now the president. Well, I knew him when he was just Donald Trump. I saw this with some of George W. Bush's friends or people who knew him when he was you know, one of the owners of the Texas Rangers. When you have that old school relationship, you kind of think of the person like that. If you're Zucker, you say the only reason Trump got this fame is because I gave it to him because I put him on The Apprentice and I produced that show and he would be nowhere without me. And then when the clash starts to come and Trump starts going after your reporters and your reporters are going after him, you don't see him as the president. You don't see him as somebody we, CNN, doesn't matter how truculent he gets with us. Our job is to remain objective. Our job is to remain neutral. One thing I wonder about is if if a media organization can be this much against somebody because this person they're covering, Trump, is so tough and bad to them. Will they just be good to somebody if somebody is good to them? They're supposed to report the news without fear or favor. They're supposed to always be straight down the middle, whether they like the person or not. And that's gone. The media gave Joe Biden such soft coverage during the campaign and through the first part of his administration until the Afghanistan withdrawal. They could not have been any easier or softer on anybody, Uh, even Barack Obama. And there's a study I have in the book that shows for the previous five presidents, one of the major polling companies studied the coverage and they said the two presidents with the softest coverage, Joe Biden got the softest, Barack Obama in second place. Of course, Trump and Bush got the worst in their first 60 days. Yeah, not surprising. Well, I want to continue on CNN, but let me just ask you as you bring this up. I've been thinking about this. Do you have a, a take on why it was with Biden that the Afghanistan withdrawal is what seemed to be the first thing that the press really gave him, let's call it Trump-style negative coverage? I, I think, one, because the pictures were horrific yeah. and the pictures told the story. So if you're narrating those pictures, unlike the riots with the fires in your background where they had they could have actually narrated more accurately, uh, there was just no way to clean up what was happening in Afghanistan with those pictures. And the tales of betrayal, the tales of woe as people tried to get to the airport. And then, of course, the the bomb that took the lives of 13 Marines. Uh, All of that became too much. How could they not cover it? And then President Biden's poll numbers started to decline in pretty short order from there. 
They had already been softening, and this really made them plunge. So then they had the secondary story where often reporters write to the polls. If the polls are going up for a politician, they'll write everything is good. If the polls start to go down, they'll write everything is bad. And then you pile on inflation, you pile on some of the other factors, including crime. Uh, all of it seemed to crescendo, and it's getting worse for Biden. I'm glad to see it's, it's getting fair. He's finally yeah. getting that fair cut. But during the campaign, Steve, my gosh, and here there's more suppression. One of the stories that I wrote about was the time that Joe Biden, from his basement, it was COVID. I don't criticize him for not campaigning, but he did a video event with the AFL-CIO, and a young woman asked him a question, a softball, about how are you going to get more people to join unions? And Joe Biden's answer on this video was, um, uh, move it up here. Uh, and then he gave his answer. <laughs> Somehow, Joe Biden, the candidate, had the question preloaded in his teleprompter. Somehow, he had the answer pre-written for him in his teleprompter for this seemingly spontaneous town hall AFL-CIO event. Now, normally, reporters would go into a feeding frenzy about that. How did you get that question? Was that given to you ahead of time? How many other events have you staged where you acted like it was a real event for you the questions ahead of time? And why did you need the answer preloaded in your teleprompter? Why couldn't you give it without a teleprompter? Nope. No one criticized Joe Biden for it in the mainstream media. Just another day. Just move on. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, let me, last thing on CNN, uh, you mentioned it. Uh, there is, you know, Jeff Zucker's gone. Chris Licht come in, comes in. Uh, Chris uh, had worked at CBS. He's worked at MSNBC. I know Chris a little bit. I I like him. I And he de- certainly has said kind of what you've discussed, which is that I want to return CNN back to objectivity. I don't think he's even used that word because objectivity apparently is a bad thing now, but essentially being a place that is not full of opinion um, and is takes a more nuanced look is not um, snobby, I think is actually kind of the, the where he's sort of described it because it's he wants to not alienate viewers in the way that I think the old CNN did. Have you seen anything that has encouraged you from them so far? I know he's just been there a couple months. And wh- do you think that that's possible without making enormous changes at the network? I, I, it's too soon to say, and, and I, that's why I question whether he really means it. I don't see how they can keep a lot of their current stars. Their stars got so invested in letting their opinions rip, and their Twitter accounts and followers went way up. The praise they got from Hollywood actors and actresses made them feel really good. They were saving America. Yeah. And for them now to go back to just asking hard questions to Democrats, asking fair questions to Republicans, and I really think even if Donald Trump doesn't run, they're going to do the same thing to DeSantis or Christy Nome or Ted Cruz or Tom Cotton that they did to Donald Trump. Just they'll swap out one person for another. I, I think it's become ingrained. It's become fun. I've always thought reporters who cover politics actually think they could be good at politics. They could be strategists. They understand how the game is played. Yeah. Let me in, coach. And they forget what it means to be objective. And this is particularly the case for younger reporters who the word objectivity riles them. Yeah. They think their job is to be subjective because there is no objectivity. There's my truth, your truth, his truth, their truth. And this is killing journalism. There is truth. Yeah. It's a reporter's job to find it. The uh, the both sidesism of objectivity is is like this dirty word now. Um, all right, let me let me move to a different topic. Uh, I, I want to ask you about Trump at the end, but first there was a story that, that you have in there, and I, I think you really lay it out. Um, it's something that, I, that fascinated me. This was in 
Uh, this was in December of 2017, I believe. It was a WikiLeaks email um, where CNN, and then it, CNN reported in, that the basically Donald Trump Jr. got an advanced look at this WikiLeaks dump during the campaign. The date was wrong on it. Um, so CNN reports this, breaks the news. CBS and MSNBC independently confirm it. And then we find out it actually was not true. It was just a, a very simple but significant error. September 4th was the email they said that Donald Trump Jr. got. Actually, it was September 14th, which means it was after the WikiLeaks dump was public. So it's essentially a moot story. It means nothing. But the fact that it was reported by several CNN reporters, obviously went through some version of a fact check or through a, a you know a, a standards and practices check, and then it gets in, independently confirmed. I, I wonder, as you look at that and, and put on kind of your political hat again, like what is happening there? Independently confirmed. Right. I've often wondered, and this goes back to my days at the White House, when a second outlet so quickly confirms something that's a bit of a complicated story that a first outlet had, if they really confirmed it at all, yeah. or did they just tell their editor under pressure? Yes, I have confirmation. I have a source. We can go with this because they don't want to get beat. You know, what happens in journalism is when you get beat on a story, your editors call you and, and tell you, you need to match that story. And they'll wake you up at midnight and say, you need to match that story. And you've got one or two hours and you know, you're working at one in the morning and you're trying to get somebody to be a source and match the story. I've often wondered if they really have a source. The other thing that happened on that story is CNN originally reported had multiple sources telling them that Donald Trump Jr. got the advanced knowledge of the Hillary email hack from WikiLeaks before it went public. Well, after CNN corrected the story because they got the date wrong, they said we had two sources. Hmm. So multiple turned into two, which is another lesson. When you hear the press say they have multiple sources, it might only be two anonymous sources. And when you hear an anonymous source is a senior source, if the quote is juicy enough, an intern is senior. They, they don't make a distinction between senior and junior source who might or might not have any knowledge of the information. You give the press something juicy enough, you're senior. Yeah. See, that that, that kind of gets out to my, my, my thought about it is just like, is there a path where what happened is some very junior person is the one who's kind of spreading this and, and just, you know, screws up? Or is it someone like Adam Schiff, who's, you know, we see in a lot of these stories, whether it's with, you know, Russiagate or, or you know, uh, the Mueller report, these these leaks that come out, and then all of a sudden their, their pundit essentially on the topic is Adam Schiff, you know, it's so anonymously write the story and then publicly respond to the story uh, that's been anonymously planted there. And if it's something like that, how how do they not feel burned by this person who's you know screwed them in that in that situation? Because when you're saving the republic from Donald Trump, if you make a mistake or three, it's okay. Yeah. I really think that's part of the thinking in these newsrooms. A shoot, we got this one wrong, but I'm sure there's others out there. So we'll just keep reporting until we get one right. How else do you explain how they fell for the collusion narrative? They fell for the steel dossier. They kept falling for stories that were bogus. How else do you explain? The press went into a two-week feeding frenzy over Donald Trump removing blue mailboxes from street corners so he could steal the 2020 election. They were refer The Postal Service was refurbishing post, post, uh, post boxes the way they always do every year in and out. 
But for two weeks, this became a legitimate mainstream media feeding frenzy that Trump was removing the blue mailboxes. Why? Because it made Trump look bad. Right. But it had nothing to do with the truth. Yeah. And, and, and after we knew uh, how important mail-in voting was to the final right. election uh, in uh, numbers in 2020, uh, yeah, it makes it even more just completely outrageous. The Fourth Watch Lightning Round is coming up. But first, what to expect from the media if, and let's be honest, when, Trump announces he's going to run again. Well, this is a good segue to the last thing I want to ask you about, which is Trump, because uh, you say, you know, if Trump runs again or if he doesn't run again, certainly the reporting right now is that he will be running again in 2024, potentially beginning as soon as the next week or two um, to, to announce that. And, and I wonder what you think of the media challenges ahead, both on the right and the left when it comes to Donald Trump, because, you know, certainly there's a scenario where he makes, you know, I'm going to become, you know, I'm going to win the election for the third time, a, a part of his campaign. And, and I wonder how challenging you think that will be, uh, I, I guess, for the Fox News of the world, but also for, you know, what will, what that will do to the left as well. I think it's going to be challenging for everybody. Um, I do believe that President Trump would have a primary if he runs. So there is going to be something to cover on the Republican side. I do fear that the Democrat press is just going to go right back to bashing Trump. Uh, there'll be no fairness, no objectivity. And that's not right. And, you know, for me, from my point of view, Steve, what I take tremendous pride in is being an analyst, not an advocate. And I'm going to continue to call the balls and strikes as I see them. And I'm going to talk about what I think President Trump did right, what he did wrong, why something may have worked, why it didn't work. And I've never shied away from doing that with Donald Trump. And I just think that's how you serve the country. That's how you serve viewers, whether you're talking to a uh, Democrat or a Republican audience. Uh, you, you should be able to do that as an analyst, but certainly as a journalist. What kind of putting your an, an analyst, sort of an analyst, but but a political analyst, a political uh, consultant, let's say, what would you say uh, to Donald Trump if he asked you for advice on on how he should navigate the the campaign when he runs again? I, I wouldn't. I just wouldn't even try to go down that road because, one, he won't listen. He'll do what he wants to do. I've often thought if Donald Trump goes around a room and asks for advice and the vote's 10 to 1, he'll look at the other people in the room. He'll say the ones have it. <laughs> um, you know, I, I just think he's that different. It's what's made him successful. When everybody says go left, he goes right and vice versa. And it's led to a lot of his success. It's led to him, especially in international affairs, being able to destroy ISIS being able to create the Abraham Accords, the sense of I don't care, they're all wrong, I'm right, can get things done in some areas. Um, but Donald Trump follows his own heartbeat for the most part. And the biggest piece of advice I would give if he won would be respect the independence of the Department of Justice, that you cannot use the Justice Department to settle any of your personal scores. Justice must be blind. If we're going to have faith in democracy, faith in our country, it's one thing to think a decision at the Department of Agriculture was shaped to help farmers somewhere. It's another to say our Department of Justice works for Donald Trump and will prosecute people he doesn't like. We can never, ever have that in our country. Yeah. Well, it's going to be a huge challenge for the, uh, quote, new CNN, if Donald Trump runs again, to, uh, to stick to their <laughs> to their plan, as you've laid out in, in your book of how it went in 2016 and 2020. Uh, all right. Last thing. Six questions, 60 seconds. What is your favorite place in the world? Nantucket. Oh, love Nantucket. Um, what's one lesson you've learned from being a dad that you think could help someone else? Just love. 
What's one guilty pleasure or vice? Baseball. I still play in an old man's wood bat league. It's a 40 and up league. It's, it's my favorite activity every Saturday. Uh, that's awesome. Who's a person that's saved in your phone contacts that may surprise people? Oh, gosh. Um, 90210. I, I, I met her when I was at the White House. Oh, gosh. Um, she was the bad girl of 90210. Shannon Doherty? Shannon Doherty. Wow. Shannon Doherty. Okay. Nice. Uh, yeah, we became friendly at the White House and I uh, haven't talked to her since. <laughs> Who's a person that consistently makes you laugh? Gosh. Can be personally one. or professionally or, you know. Yeah, maybe my kids. You know, yeah. it's that kind of, my daughter has got a, a wicked sense of humor. So I'm going to give it to my daughter. All right. Uh, what's the last great piece of content you consumed? Other than a grilled cheese sandwich, um, I love reading books and I just finished a thousand page book about the Middle Ages. Uh, I'm kind of fascinated by the Middle Ages. There's a big piece of me that wants to restore the French monarchy. Um, so I, it's probably that, that book about the Middle Ages. All right. All right. And everyone should go check out Ari's book. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you. Thanks to Ari Fleischer. Go check out his book. It's great. Remember, Fourth Watch, not just a podcast, also a newsletter. Subscribe for free now at Fourth like the number fourthwatch.media. Join me. Let's build a better media together. If you like the music in this show as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper. That's Super Duper Music on Instagram. The song is Fall From Falling. Download it wherever you get your music and download and follow and like this show on Apple and Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. Back soon. Stay safe. Talk to you then.